Everybody say incarnate. And it's an intimate look at Jesus from perhaps a perspective you may not have thought about a lot. The word incarnate means deity in human flesh. Everybody say it with me. Deity in human flesh. That's what we believe Jesus is. We, we, we go heavy uh, on, on theology at this church. We, we try to, you know, to, to not make it boring to the layperson, we try to ingrain it within the fabric of our messages. But a big part of our theology here at the church is you must understand Jesus is God. So we magnify and put a lot of attention on the fact that Jesus is God. But sometimes we may, because of the magnifying glass on his deity, we may neglect the humanity side, that Jesus was also human. And I want to start tonight with a question. I want you to think about it. Uh, if you shout it out and you're wrong, you will be embarrassed, and it's okay. There's not a lot of people here. So I'll, I want you to think about it. And nobody, let me just give you one hint and one clue. Nobody say the word nothing because you, some of you will think that's the answer and it's not. What is the only thing Jesus was in the scriptures that he no longer is today? Somebody whispered it over here. They said flesh. Another acceptable answer would be human. During his bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus was glorified in his physical state supernaturally and restored all of the glory that he had with the Father before he came. Okay. So Jesus, after the resurrection, you know, he was he was walking through walls and appearing to the disciples and then disappearing. He was walking on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. He sat down to eat with them, and when they recognized him, he vanished. He just disappeared. Uh, Jesus bodily rose and ascended into heaven in front of his followers. He was no longer human at that point after the resurrection. But for 33 and a half years, he was very much a human being. And this is important because it's the a clause of the doctrine of identification. Now, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, you've heard me mention, teach, preach the doctrine of identification in some form, but we mainly only focus on the B clause of the doctrine of identification. The B clause of the doctrine of identification, they put the A clause up first, but that's okay, we'll get there. The B clause of the doctrine of identification is the one we're all familiar with. So the B clause is the believer can identify with the death of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes about this extensively in the epistles. He writes things like, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Well, what is, he, what is he teaching there? It's the doctrine of identification. Paul is saying, I have so identified with the death of Jesus Christ that it's like I died and paid for the sins when Jesus died. So Paul's like, I, I have no more debt to sin because when Jesus died, I have so identified with him, it's as if I died. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Doctrine of identification. Uh, Paul wrote, he that is dead is freed from sin. In other words, you can't come and collect a debt from a dead man. 
And Paul said, I have believed and identified so much with the death of Jesus that I died when he died. And therefore, even though I'm alive, I'm free from the dominion, the power, and the penalty of sin. He writes in Romans 6 that we, believers, are buried with Jesus Christ in baptism. So there is no more dominion that either sin nor death or the grave can have over us because we have identified with Jesus Christ. He writes things like, he that is in Christ is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. In him I live, I move, and I have my being. Interesting side note, anytime you see the in Christ in Scripture, that's the doctrine of identification. Identifying, the believer is identifying and connecting to Christ. Um, it, it's, it's even made its way into old church jargon, you know, and songs. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. What is that? What's the heart of that? It goes back to the doctrine of identification. But that's the B clause. The A clause is not about the believer identifying with Christ. The A clause is that Christ has identified with the believer by becoming human. Before he ever invited us to identify with him, he first identified with us. Before he saved us, he identified with us. Now, Everyone in the world that has an audience tries to identify with them because there is no possibility of relationship without identification. Now, most people do this on the surface. They, they try to give an illusion of identification. You know, we've just come through a severe political season. All I'm going to say about that, don't get excited. <laughs> and you know what politicians will do if they're, if they're going to meet with a group of bankers, they'll put on a real spiffy suit and a, a crisp shirt, and they'll go in there and they'll say something like, my father was a banker. And I know what it's like to be you, and if you'll elect me, I'll make things better for bankers. And then he'll get in his limousine and he'll go to the next campaign stop where he's going to talk to some factory workers and he'll put on some overalls and a sweatshirt and he'll walk in there and say, my grandfather was a factory worker. And I know what it's like to be you. And if you'll vote for me, I'll make things better for factory workers. What's he doing? He's trying to identify. And he's using cheap you know, surface things, but he's trying to identify nevertheless. When you identify with someone, you are saying, I know what it's like to be you. I feel your pain. But Jesus refused to settle for an illusion of identification. He actually became a human to truthfully identify with what he was coming to save. Now, go with me. If y'all have it in the NLT, great. If you don't, I'll, I'll just read it. But go with me to Hebrews 2, 14, if you can, in the NLT upstairs. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, speaking of Jesus, 
also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die. Next verse. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. He identified with us. Now, go to, back to the New King James Version. Go to Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. And look at this powerful scripture. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. That's us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Next verse. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, how is he able to help us through a temptation? First of all, raise your hand if you've ever been tempted. Oh, we need this then. How is he able to aid or assist or help us through our temptations? Well, it's because he's experienced it, not as God. He's experienced it as human. Now go to Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Look at this beautiful verse. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points. Everybody shout all points. No, say it like you had coffee before church. All points. That means in every way you can be tested or tempted. In Jesus' short, relatively, 33 and a half year life, God ordained it and made sure that in every way you can be tempted or tested, Jesus was tempted or tested. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Next verse. Let us, therefore, because of that, let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Look at that. Let us come boldly. Why? Because he's a merciful high priest. Because he has been tempted in all points as we are. Because of that, let us come boldly. Where? Come on, y'all. Where? To the throne of? Notice it's a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. What? Right? Why is it a throne of grace and not a throne of judgment? Because the one sitting on it is a sympathetic high priest that's already been through whatever it is you're going through. Hallelujah. 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 And he went through it as a human. So he has the innate ability to instantly relate and identify with what you're going through, with how you feel, with what you're thinking. Because not only is he God, he was a human. Now, what are some of our greatest challenges that Jesus understands from a human perspective. When we go to God and pray, we tend to go to God thinking of his deity. But what challenges do we have that Jesus not only understands as God being all-knowing, but that he understands from a human perspective? Let's look at some of them. Number one, 
relationships. Go to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Anybody ever had problems in your relationship? Not just, you know, romantic relationships, but family relationships, you know? Anybody got some crazy siblings, crazy brothers and sisters, crazy family? Mark, uh, help them, Jesus. Mark 6, verse 3. Look at this again. Mark 6, 3. The crowd, he was teaching, the crowd said, is this not the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Let's look at his brothers. He's got James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. He's got four brothers. And then they said his sisters. They didn't mention how many. We know there's at least two. You know, Jesus had siblings. We don't think about that. We don't often think about, you know, Jesus as a toddler, then as a child, then as a teenager, growing up in a house with six other people his age. And you know how kids fight. Sometimes I think my two little boys are going to kill each other and they're they're three and six. You know, little kids are not kind people. <laughs> Y'all left me? It's all right. I'm going to say it over here. Little kids are not kind by nature. You know? Can you imagine the drama that was going on in their house? And, you know, I, I feel bad for Jesus' other brothers, uh, you know, because... I don't have any brothers or sisters, but I have a really intimate inside view of the sibling relationship because I'm raising two boys, and it's crazy. And I am so thankful you didn't have any more kids. Lord Jesus, thank you, God Almighty. You imagine Jesus' brothers, you know, the Bible said Jesus, you know, although he was tempted, he never sinned, you know, so that means all of his life he had never committed a sin, and you know his brothers were little heathens, and you know they were doing something, and mama and daddy would come in and say, why can't you be more like Jesus? Imagine how his brothers hated him. He was growing up in a house with, with siblings and all the dynamics that come along with that. He understands what it's like to be single. If you're single in the house tonight, with all the complexities that go into being single. And you know, and you know, being being single at 20 is not the same as being single at 40. You know. Sometimes, you know, sometimes for some people in certain situations, it's better to be single at 40 because of how much hell you went through in, in previous relationships. But either way, it has complexities. And whatever your particular perplexing situation is, Jesus knows what it's like to be single. Jesus knows what it's like to be married. Did you know that? Bible says over and over and over again that the church is the bride of Christ. In Revelation, the angel 
told John, he said, come and I will show you the lamb's wife. He knows what it's like to be married. I'll take it a step further. He knows what it's like to be married to an unfaithful spouse. You and me. In case you didn't get the inference. He knows what it's like to be faithful and to be loving someone as much as they can be loved and have them go days without talking to them. He knows what it's like to be thinking about someone far more often than they're thinking about you. Have you ever loved somebody that didn't love you back? Jesus still does. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to have a family. You know, don't forget he's God. And we are all the children of God. He knows what it's like to have children that are disobedient. Whatever relational dynamics you are dealing with, Jesus knows it experientially. Not knows it because he's all-knowing. Knows it because he's been through it. He's experienced it as a human. And then he knows what it's like to have family members that not even he got along with. I want to show you one of the most savage scriptures in the Bible. You buckle your seatbelt on this one. Mark chapter 3. 31 through 35. I want you to read this scripture. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. Next verse. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Next verse. But he answered them, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who were there. He looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Next verse. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, let me explain that to you. In other words, he's somewhere teaching the word. His mama and his brothers they come and they say, we'd like a word with Jesus. The people go in and say, Jesus, your mom and them's here. And he says, I don't know those people. You ever been embarrassed of your own family? You know, you mess around and take your family member somewhere important with you and they start acting the way they act and you just... You want to know what's worse about it? Why didn't Jesus go out and greet his family? Now, let's think about this. Why didn't Jesus go out and greet his family? Well, let's back up and see what had just happened. Mark 3, 21, look at this. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, when it says his own people the translation is his whole family, his whole household, everybody that grew up with him. So, so I want you to picture this. He starts his ministry when he's 30. 
been around these people all of his life, starts his ministry when he's 30, and he starts preaching the word of God, and he starts claiming that he is the Messiah. When he did, his whole family came out and tried to physically grab him and drag him off the stage, and his own family told all the people that were listening to him, y'all don't listen to him, he crazy. You ever had a family member doubt you? Or publicly scrutinize what you knew in your heart was for you to do? Publicly say to you and other people, you're going to fail at that. If you have, so is Jesus. Okay. So, he knew what family relationships and dynamics were all about. And he also had friends. He knew what it was like. I love this note. He knew what it was like to deal with the pressure of a close friend's expectation. See, the problem with having friends, if you're a real friend, now, let me just say this, let me just throw this in here. Most people don't, want, don't know what it's like to be a real friend. And most people don't want to be a real friend. <coughs> they talk about friendship like it's cute. Real friendship is covenant. Real friendship means if I am your friend and I get in a jam, you in a jam. You right in the jam with me. Okay, we're in it together. That means if, if, if you're my friend, you give me the license to call you at 2.30 in the morning and tell you I you know, had a blowout on the side of the road. I need you to get yourself up out of bed, drive all the way down here to get me, fix this tire, and drive me back. And I expect you to do it, and I'm mad at you if you don't. Why? Because you're my friend. Friend. So don't rush into being friends with people. Because when you do, you give them the key, okay, the access point to your pressure, all right? Okay, when you're a real friend, you can pressure me. I'll get up under it if you're my real friend. So, you know, all the people Jesus ministered to, all the people Jesus touched, you know, he's got three and a half years to change the world. Not a lot of time. Very busy. Very intense schedule. But the Bible says he had three friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And these people are, are so oblivious to everything he's really doing. Okay? The mission that he's really on. That they think the world ought to stop because Lazarus got sick. But here's the crazy part. Because they were his friends... They had access. They knew where he was. They knew how to get a hold of him. And they, without email, without cell phones, without a pager, without a tele, they got word to him, stop what you're doing and get over here and heal our brother. That's friend pressure. And then when, when he showed up four days later and Lazarus had died, they had the nerve to get an attitude. Because nobody will get an attitude with you like a family member or a close friend. 
Both sisters come out and say the same thing. If you'd have been here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and at first, Mary wouldn't even come out. Mary stayed in the house. She didn't even want to see him. She gave him the cold shoulder. Then when she does come out, she says, if you would have been here. And, and he made himself susceptible to that kind of pressure. You know, I don't know about you. I hate it when somebody's trying to manipulate me. Something starts coming up the back of my heel all the way up my leg and back when I feel that somebody's trying to manipulate me. But there are some people in your life because of relationship, you allow them to manipulate you. Husbands and wives look straight at me. Okay. <laughs> there are some people you will give access to the room where all your buttons are in and you will let them push your buttons because of the relationship. And the story with Jesus and his friends is amazing to me because he was allowing them that level of access to come out and get an attitude with him, to come up and manipulate him, to come up and make a show out of it. And he let them do it. He knew what it was like to have friends. Jesus knew what it was like to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. Remember in John 15, he looks at the disciples. He said, I call you no longer servants. Now I call you friends. And one of those close friends. Have you ever had a close friend that knew all your business? Stab you in the back? Well, it ain't nothing that feels like that, you know? And if you've never had it happen to you, God bless you. It almost, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you won't. Some of you think I'm, I'm silly, but it almost has a taste. When you get betrayed by a close friend, there, it's almost a flavor to it that comes in your mouth. You know, if you've experienced that, Jesus did too. Betrayed by his own. There's nothing you are going through in the realm of your relationships that Jesus doesn't know experientially. It'll change your prayer life if you understand this. It'll change the way you go to him if you understand this. It'll change the intimacy level with which you talk to him if you understand. He was a human. Point number two, what, what does Jesus understand experientially from a human perspective that are some challenges for us? Number two, work. Anybody have any problems at work? Nobody in this whole section has any problems at work. I want all y'all to lay hands on all these people over here because I know there's some people over here that know what it's like to have some frustrations and some difficulties at work. Glory, hallelujah. It's anointed side right over here. I want, I want to say some things about work, all right? I want to say some things about work that you may not have thought about or you may not have thought deeply about. Jesus was a carpenter by trade, okay. construction work. Okay. And he was a carpenter in an era, an era that there was no power drills. There was no motorized saw. You know. 
probably one of the hardest professions at one of the hardest times that there was. Hard work. He was a hard worker in a very physically demanding job. Jesus' job, carpentry, I like to call carpentry the intersection of manual labor and extreme skill and craftsmanship. Because it doesn't matter if you're strong and you can get in and have a lot of energy and just sweat. You have to be masterfully skillful. Carpentry is almost a science when you consider the geometry and all of the angles and all the things. And yet it's also an art because you want to make something beautiful enough that people want to buy it. He was a carpenter for 18 years. I want you to think about that. He ministered and preached and healed people for three and a half years. Okay? He was a carpenter for 18 years. He started as an apprentice with Joseph at age 12. Started learning the trade. Didn't start preaching and ministering until 30. For 18 years, he was in the workforce doing manual labor. He was a carpenter far longer than he was a minister, a teacher, and a healer. He knew what it was like to work. He knew what it was like. It's amazing to imagine this. He knew what it was like to have to go out and bid a job. And know that there were other people competing for the bid and having to adjust his prices. Those of you that have ever had to adjust your prices, yeah raw feeling you get? Jesus knows that feeling. He knew what it was like, this is a good one, to complete a job for a client and have the client fail to pay. Ain't none of y'all know what that's like? That's all right. We're going to get somebody in here. He would have had he would have had calluses on his hands. Can you think about that? He would have had blisters, rough hands, a working man's yeah. hands. Yeah. Jesus knows what it's like to work hard for your money and then have to turn around and pay taxes. Too much taxes to a twisted and wicked government. Jesus knew what it was like to work with and sometimes work for a trifling people. He knew what it was like to work with people that went to church all the time at the synagogue, but when it came time to write the check, y'all don't know nothing about that. This whole section just checked out on me right there. Whatever frustrations you're having with work. He knew what it was like to be underappreciated. To work and do an excellent job and have the person he was working for say, hmm. He knew what it was like. It's human. And then the most beautiful one to me, number three. What does Jesus know experientially? 
from a human perspective that, that we go through. Number three, pain. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of places we could go with pain. I, I want to focus on two, emotional and physical. And one, one set of scriptures bears this out. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 3 describes emotional pain. All right, we'll see it in a few words. He is despised and rejected. By men. You ever have anybody that despised you? Well, have you? Have you ever had somebody reject you? He's despised and rejected by men. And then a man of sorrows. That's emotional pain. And then this interesting one. Acquainted with grief. Or introduced to grief. That's emotional pain. Then in verse 5, it talks about the physical pain. All this is on Isaiah 53, verse 5, the physical pain. But he was wounded. That's physical pain. For our transgressions, he was bruised. That's physical pain for our iniquities. So let's look at this. Let's first look at despised and rejected. Jesus, through his whole ministry, was often mocked and ridiculed. I read it to you twice already throughout the class. Jesus was often mocked and ridiculed in his ministry because he did not come from a scholarly or intellectual background. Remember we read it when we read the text? They're saying, uh, where are you getting all this from? Aren't you the carpenter's son? You know? In other words, he was on the scene claiming to be a teacher, a rabbi, even the Messiah, and they were saying, yeah, but your pedigree don't match your pronouncement. You know, you're, you're a carpenter trying to make claims that an intellectual would be making or a, a master student would be making. H- have you ever had somebody reject you because of where you didn't go to school? Like if you didn't go to one of the eight prestigious colleges that, that you don't know nothing, like you can't tell them nothing. You, you can't instruct them on nothing because you didn't go to XYZ school. Like you're a blithering idiot because you didn't matriculate from one of their universities. And that's what they did to G. Where'd you go to school? Who'd you, who'd you study under? You trying to be my pastor and you didn't go to seminary? What, what, what are you talking about? He was despised because of his background. He was blue collar. He was a man that worked with his hands. And they all knew him. He was a famous carpenter. This is the carpenter. He's preaching now. He was despised and rejected because of his background. Not only because of what he did for a living, because of what his daddy did. Well, it's the carpenters. You know, can't tell me nothing. And then he was also despised, rejected, and mocked. You may, you may not always think about this, especially when you move further into the Gospels after, you know, after everyone talks about Christmas and the birth of Christ and what a beautiful story and all that. But you may never realize that for all of Jesus' life, there was a large percentage of people that called him illegitimate. Okay. And we have a word for that in our vernacular today. Don't get mad at me. The word is bastard. They called him that all of his life. He had to, he had to wear that cloud over him everywhere he went. Oh, now, now you're standing up and trying to teach us something about God. You know, 
you're, you're legitimate, you know? Nobody believes that story your mama and daddy told about an angel coming and that you came from God. We know what happened in that circumstance. <laughs> no. And sometimes, I don't know if you know what this, like, this is like. Sometimes people will believe a lie about you so long that it actually, to them, it becomes part of your character and part of your story. And there's nothing you can do to get them not to believe it or think it. I mean, Jesus is jerking people out of coffins and healing blinded eyes and turning water into wine, and they're still pointing at him saying, ah, but you're illegitimate. You know? For some people... They'll just never give you access. They'll just never give you an opportunity. And if you've ever had to go through something like that, maybe somebody told a rumor about you, something that wasn't true, you know, and you've had to live with that and you're frustrated because it never got fixed, you know? It never got justified. If, if you're dealing with that, Jesus did too. Did you know that Jesus was even mocked and vilified because of his race? It was interesting. At the time... Rome, the Roman Empire, was dominating. They had dominion and control over Israel. And so the Romans were racist against the Jews. So you know the, you know the common teaching. We all, we've all seen it in the depictions and, and all heard about it. They, they wrote something above Jesus' head when they put him on the cross, uh, the king of the Jews. But what you may not know is the way they wrote it was a racial slur. They were mocking his race when they hung the sign over his head. So you want to talk about emotional pain. Whatever emotional pain you've got going on tonight, Jesus has experienced it all, despised and rejected. He was mocked, if you can imagine this, he was mocked up until the point he was about to die. If you're really the son of God, come down off that cross. Mocked and rejected. Then, physical pain. I went through some of this. I didn't know if, maybe you didn't know it. Jesus was physically beaten by three separate garrisons of guards. Did you know that? The Jewish guards of the Sanhedrin court, they beat him with their fists, took turns, passed him around, and punched him. Then Herod's guards beat him with long wooden rods. And then Pilate's guards took that famous cat o' nine tail whip, nine leather strips, sewn with bone and metal and glass to lacerate the flesh of the victim. Three, three different beatings by three different garrisons, meaning there was enough of them that when one got tired of beating him, they could bring in a fresh one. Physical pain. They... They ripped the beard out of his face. Now, I was shaving the other day. 
dull razor, and the blade caught some of my whiskers, but it wasn't sharp enough to cut it, so it just ripped them out. Be surprised. I know the women are saying, you don't know nothing about pain for, from grooming, but still, you'd be surprised how much a couple of whiskers hurt getting yanked out of your face, and they took turns ripping his beard out, ripping his beard out of his face. They took a crown of thorns and pressed it down and then twisted it on his head. Then hung him on a cross with nails driven through his hands and his feet. You realize this, don't you? Surely you do. Surely it's not shock to say it. Jesus Christ was tortured to death in the most profoundly painful way. Pain, physical pain. You're in pain tonight. You can talk to him. He understands. Something going on in your physical body is hurting you making it hard to sleep, making it hard to rest. You can talk to him. He understands. But then, what about that last part Isaiah said? Acquainted with grief. I've been stuck there. Acquainted with not pain, not sorrow. We know that about Jesus. But you may not know that he was acquainted with grief. The grief of losing a loved one. Huh. Do you remember when I read to you that in Mark chapter 6, the crowd said he was the son of Mary? In Matthew 13, 55, similar crowd said a similar thing. Oh, that's just the son of Mary. And then John 6, 42 said something interesting, something different. It said he was the Oh, you were listening. What you have to think about here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Okay. Similar gospels. They tell essentially the same stories from unique perspectives. Matthew said, I was there and I saw it like this. Mark said, well, I was there and I saw it like this. And when you read them together, they add details. They add mosaic pieces to make up the whole artwork of it. Okay. John's gospel is not synoptic because it was written, the scholars can't decide, between 25 and 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. So John, which was the only disciple of Jesus that was not martyred, the only one to live to an old age, John gets old, reads Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John notices something. He notices that for the most part, except for his birth and maybe a few stories here and there, for the most part, the other apostles focus 
on the third and final year of Jesus' ministry. They left out a lot of stuff in the first two. So that's why when John writes his gospel account, you have things in John that you do not have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You have things like Jesus turned water into wine. You'll only find that in John because he's not so much focusing on the last year. He's focusing on what was going on the first two years. You have the pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed the lame man. You'll only find that in John. You'll have the raising of Lazarus. You'll only find that in John. You'll have when he stopped and he, he spit and he put mud balls into the blind man's eye. You'll only find that in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really focused on the final year. And in the final year, Matthew and Mark, tell they both tell the story about the crowd coming to Jesus and saying, this is Mary's son. They said that about Jesus in the final year. That's Mary's son. When John writes about it, on a separate occasion, a similar crowd said a similar thing to Jesus within the first two years of his ministry. And John wrote it down. They said, this is Joseph's son. You know what that means? It means that in the third year of Jesus' ministry, Joseph died. The man that raised him. The only man that believed he was who he said he was because Joseph had heard from the angel. <laughs> the one that taught him how to be a man in this world. Challenges, Jesus did come from God the Father, but here's the thing about God the Father. The scripture says he's not a man. He's not a man that he can lie. He's not a man, right? So if Jesus is going to learn how to be a man in the world, Joseph was the one that was going to teach him. And Joseph died in the third year of Jesus' ministry. He was still performing miracles in the third year. You know what this means? This means Jesus could have raised him from the dead. But he didn't. Why? So that he could be introduced to a thing called grief. Because he knew at some point you were going to come along and you were going to have to bury someone you loved. And you were going to ache to hold them and ache to see their face and ache to touch them. Something was going to happen in the course of your day and you were going to be desperate to talk to them and tell them about it. And you weren't going to be able to. And it was going to cause a pain in your heart that nothing in this life can compare to. And he didn't want you to go through that. So he let his earthly daddy die. So he could feel what you feel and be acquainted. It's the first time God ever dealt with grief. He had to let it happen so he could identify 
with you. There is nothing in your life that escapes his experiential knowledge. There's nothing going on in your mind. There's nothing going on in your home. There's nothing going on in your relationship. There's nothing going on in the secret places and crevices of your heart that Jesus isn't intimately familiar with. And he did all of that so he would have the chance to win your heart. So he would have the chance to show you his love and his redemption and his forgiveness. So he would have the chance. That's what he did on all of us, you know? Leaving us a free will means that in a sense he was gambling. In a sense he was putting himself out there by doing it. Because ultimately the decision is still yours on what you'll do with Jesus. Now, as we proceed further in this series, there's going to come a point from looking at him like this, like we did tonight over and over and over again, from focusing on him. There's going to come a point where worship, like has never broken out of you, is going to break out of you towards Jesus our God. There's going to come a point, it may be the second message or the fourth or the fifth, I don't know when it's going to happen, but there's going to come a point the more you look at him, the more you study him, the more you intently seek him, there's going to come a point when just how beautiful he is begins to break open every hard place in your heart. Or just how beautiful and radiant his glory is, is going to overwhelm you to the point that it takes you back to your first love that you haven't visited with him in a long time. There's going to come a point, the more you look at him, the more you focus on him, there's going to come a point where you can't help but sing. There's going to come a point where you won't stop singing. There's going to come a point when the preacher will get up and tell you to be seated. You won't be able to sit down because you're thinking about him so much and viewing him and seeing him so much that everything on the inside of you is leaping up higher than you can leap, is standing up higher than you can stand. There's going to come a point when you begin to see him how he really is. There's going to come a point the scales fall off of your eyes and you realize he really is the most important thing. There's going to come a point where you realize nobody has ever loved me the way he loves me. Nobody has ever given up for me what he gave up for me. Nobody has ever been as consistent or faithful towards me as he has been. There's going to come a point there's going to come a point. And tonight, we set our focus. We start this series. I see tears streaming down some of your faces. I hope you know now what I was talking about when I started off tonight. It's a thought. It's a consideration. Every believer needs to have Jesus. Look at him. An intimate look at God incarnate. Stand to your feet and give the Lord a praise tonight.
Tonight, we're going to end by partaking of his body and of his blood through communion together. I feel there's no more worshipful, honoring thing we can do. And right before we take this, I just want to challenge you to lift your hands up all over this house and out of your mouth with your own words, just somehow, some way, utter praise to him. Give him a thank you or give him, I love you, Lord, or, or give him, I worship you, Lord, or give him a, you're worthy, Lord, or, or, or give him, give him something that comes from your heart, from your heart, from your heart, from your heart. Give it quiet if you want to. Give it loud if you want to. Give it with a shout if you want to. Give it with a tear if you want to. However you want to give it to him, let's not consider him this way and think of him this way and then stay silent. Can you see him? Has everyone been served communion? If you have not been served, wave at me. If you don't have a communion cup, anybody in the house, any hand, has anyone not been served? DJ, are you raising your hand? Have you been served? Okay, I just want to make sure. I can't see that far. Okay. Take the bread out, please. Understand this represents the body. The body that was wounded, the body that was broken, the body that suffered. The body. I hope you can see it. I hope you can imagine it. I hope you can see blood dripping off his cheeks as they ripped his beard out. I hope you can see the wounds in his flesh as they drove those nails through his feet and his hands. I hope you can see it. 
bloody, sweaty, dehydrated. So that our putrid wickedness could be forgiven. He let them do that to him. And by taking communion, it's one of the many ways Christianity tells us to identify with what he did. This is part of the doctrine of identification. I like to, I like to break the wafer. Because it reminds me that I was partly responsible for breaking his body. The sins I committed were part of the blow that broke his body. You might do that too. You might break the wafer in your hand and, and realize it was your weaknesses and your wickedness and your sins that helped break his body. His body was broken for you. Say that with me. His body was broken for me. For me. For what I did. How can we say thank you? <laughs> Maybe that's why David said, if I had 10,000 tongues, I couldn't say it enough. How can we say thank you? Let's take his body together. Several things in the Bible bring a guaranteed curse. Adultery brings a curse. The murder of another person brings a curse. Abortion is included in that. It brings a curse. Giving an oath in court that is not true to harm someone else brings a curse participating in any form of witchcraft is a curse. Incidentally, manipulation in the Bible is likened to the sin of witchcraft. So if you've ever manipulated anyone purposely, you've performed witchcraft. It brings a curse. But there's only one thing in the scripture that breaks every curse. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, no matter what you've been into, no matter what you entangled or tied yourself up in, the blood of Jesus breaks every curse. The blood of Jesus breaks every curse. There's not a witch that can hex you. There's not a warlock that can put a spell on you. There's not a voodoo or a magic thing that'll work against a child of God who is covered by the blood of Jesus. And when we take communion, we remind ourselves by lifting this cup over our head 
that from the top of our head to the sole of our feet, our life is hidden in Christ, and we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Every curse has to be broken. Every single thing in your life hunting you down, looking for you to repay some evil on you that you did years ago. Every curse has to be broken by the power of the blood of Jesus. And we again say, how can we say thanks? All the stuff you took off us. Our beautiful, beautiful Savior. We rejoice in taking your blood tonight. In Jesus' name. God bless you. The Lord your God keep you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. May you be strengthened in the inner being the more you consider and look at Jesus, our Savior. I pray his presence visits you in the night, goes home with you gets involved, gets in your car with you, I pray that you cannot stop thinking about Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship him as we leave with our tithe and our offerings. If you have your tithe, or you have an offering, something you would like to give the Lord to honor him with, you can prepare that however you're doing it, if you're giving online or if you're giving through your phone or if you're giving live here in the building, you can get that and bring it to the front. Lord, thank you for blessing the people as they give. Thank you. Thank you for opening up financial doors and making crooked paths straight. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for increasing your people as you're known to do. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Welcome. Well, I hope you stay with me for the rest of the series. I sure do love you. We'll see you this weekend.